You're listening to Unlocking Our Sound Heritage and Voices from the Arts, brought to you by Manx National Heritage, the charity responsible for the Isle of Man's natural and cultural heritage. The sound recordings you'll hear today and throughout this series on Manx Radio are part of a unique collection of around 600 sound recordings, digitised from the Manx National Heritage Sound Archive and available now online for the first time. The team at Manx National Heritage hope you enjoy eavesdropping on the voice clips we've chosen from the nation's sound archive, all of which can be listened to in full at imuseum.im. This island is steeped in the arts. Art, literature, theatre, dance, music and film. There's been a host of makers and audiences over the years. On landing or leaving the island at Ronaldsway Airport, the sculpture The Three Legs of Man is a prominent place reminder. You can listen to its creator Brian Neal on imuseum.im talk about its inception. But in this 1990 Manx Museum lecture, Brian shares how the Isle of Man has provided inspiration to him as a Manx sculptor. When you actually spend even a short time here, you go down like the other day when I, la- I landed. Within minutes I begin to sort of think, well, I know what goes on over that hedge and down there at Satin Gorge where I first went into the caves and then round the corner is the road down to the um, Scarlet. And that's where my grandmother lived, just by the bridge at Castletown. And um, the whole place is alive for me in a way that living in London can never be. And so, really, I suppose, though I don't come physically here, I can, I can go for a walk in the Isle of Man in my head at any time. I can take myself down to the port point of air and suddenly remember the sound of the sea pulling against the, sh- the, the shingle there. I can remember being as a child amongst the, uh, the corn being cut and stooking the corn in the field, the heat of the Baldoon Valleys, or down in the brew below. And I can remember the adventures, too. I can remember, for instance, a great cart horse we had. It's called Blossom. Blossom being driven mad by the uh, mayflies, the, the, you know, the flies teasing her and biting her. She started running, and she couldn't stop. She ran down and down, and the fields were so fast that she hurtled right down crashed into the brew, and I saw her hanging in the brew. Now, any, any sculptor never forgets an occasion like that. I remember, too, just walking through the fields and seeing, you know, a dead rook tied up on a stick, blowing in the wind. And these are the sort of the raw material of sculpture. You can get it. It's all around you. And uh, no better place than this. Far from nature... It was boarding house linoleum and a mangle that best served artists interned in Douglas during the Second World War, as internee Dr Klaus Hinrichsen recalled in 1991. Obviously, there was no paper, but also there was no possibility in uh, doing lino cuts. But fortunately, the landladies had, lost, uh, had left a, loss, a lot of lino in their kitchens <laughs> and corridors, which soon was transformed, uh, transformed into works of art. They also had, in their laundry room, left a mangle, 
the laundry mangle, which served to produce all these uh, etchings and, and, and all, all, all the prints from all these woodcuts. Archibald Knox, artist and designer for Liberty in the early part of the last century, is surely one of our best-known Manx-born artists. He also taught art in Douglas. Nellie Mitchell was one of his pupils and in 2008 shared her memories of Knox with Manx National Heritage curator Yvonne Creswell. Art lessons with Knox in 1928 had their perils. So, um, when... Did you uh, first meet Mr Knox? Well, I won a scholarship to the high school, to Pock Road. Right. And uh, it was 1928, because it was when the St Ninian's Boys School was finished and they moved out. And um, in those days, there were no art rooms or anything in Pock Road. There was a lot of building done later. And we spent an awful lot of time running here, there and everywhere. And we had to go over to the art school right. in opposite, uh, you know where that is. Oh, Kensington Road. Yes. And we had to go there for art. Well, that's when I first met Mr uh, Knox. And thinking back, um, he never ever, he never ever taught us art. He never taught us about paints or like a, a blue and red, red, green or anything. And we used to have to walk from Park Road over to there and it was a big circle of chairs. And in the middle of the room there were wooden blocks, wooden balls, triangles and everything set up. And he used to come in and say, that's what you're doing today and that was it we had to uh, draw it and he used to disappear right and then every so often he'd come in and he'd he'd walk around the back of us in a circle seeing what we'd done and any anyone any drawings he didn't like or he didn't think we'd done them right my friend was sitting next to me. She used to wear glasses. He'd come round and he'd say, Hmm, take off your glasses. She'd take her glasses off. Wallop. Round your ears. She reckons that's why she's gone deaf. <laughs> and uh, this is what went on yes. the whole time. Then he disappeared again. So we, were, we never had him speaking to us about art or anything. Right. And um, when he'd gone out, I used to try and do a little bit for her so she wouldn't get battered yes. on the ears. Fortunately, I didn't get battered on the ears. And that's what—that's the main thing I remember about Archie Knox, you see. And um, and then we'd all, um, he'd say, that's it. And we'd all toddle off yes. back. And we'd go again next week, trotting along. And when we walked in, we'd say, oh, no, not again. <laughs> the same thing you yes. in the middle of the floor in a different position, yes. maybe. And that's all we ever did the whole time we were going. Well, then, of course, the summer holidays came around. And um, uh, when we went back after summer holidays, there'd been alterations done to the school. Yes. 
and there was a, a lovely new art room had been right. built. So we all would tip along the first day and we said, we hope it's not those blue things again. Where was Archibald Knox? He wasn't there. It was Mr Chisholm right. that took over. Well, that was a different kettle of fish altogether. He taught us art, you know. Knox designs appear on the Hall Kane Memorial in Kirkmackle Churchyard. In his time, this late Victorian writer Hall Kane was known all over the world as the Manx novelist with droves of visitors coming to the island to see the places he had written about. Janet Gibb of The Grove in Ramsey remembers hearing Hall Caine speak in this clip recorded at her home in 1973. Round about then, this time, when uh, your aunt yes. sort of had you to look after, just about the time Hall Caine was sort of at his peak. Yes, yes, uh, I remember him speaking from the balcony of the um, uh, commissioner's place there. You know, it had a balcony. The middle. Go back to Hall Kane. Yes. Oh, um, Hall Kane, you see, was member for Ramsey yeah. for a uh, time. And uh, on this occasion, he was addressing, he was addressing the voters from the balcony of um, the commissioner's building. And uh, I had never heard him speak before, but he had a delightful voice, a very nice voice, very clear and kind of musical. I know <laughs> and when he, when you knew that he had run about the streets uh, no doubt it was as a as a treat but barefoot as a small boy sometime as you mm. know mm. and how did you girls react to his books well, um, I enjoyed them all, but uh, I think, I don't think he brought out the best points always of the Manx character. Capturing the Manx character, if there is such a thing, preoccupied that other Victorian writer, the poet T.E. Brown. Let's enjoy Constance Kewen Radcliffe, herself a writer, reciting one of Brown's Manx dialect poems, many more of which are available on imuseum.im. Next is a very short piece by the Reverend T.E. Brown, who lived in Ramsey in his retirement on Windsor Mount above the Moorock Park. In the 1930s, my father, Alec Curfee, used to recite extracts from some of Mr Brown's longer narrative poems and also parts of the group called In the Coach. The little poem I've chosen from the In the Coach group makes it clear that the coach that Mr Brown wrote about was the Ramsey coach operated by Jem Crow and this was running from the 1860s onwards 
from the yard in Tower Street, which was later Crellin's Yard, where the Crellin family operated coaches, and now it's Mr George Young's Yard. Sometimes the passengers on the coach got more company than they bargained for. Noah's Ark, number six of In the Coach. On the road. Good gracious, what in the world is this? A low cough, ma'am. Why, you don't mean to say... I'll just take it by the scruff, ma'am. We'll leave it at the door. It's belonging to Mr Moore. And to think the abominable brute was sucking at my boot, Mr Crow. Mr Crow, I'd have you to know. Just a little cough, ma'am. Just a little cough. Arrival at Ramsey. Mercy on us, what next? A little donkey, ma'am. A little what? Good heavens! Oh, you needn't be funky, ma'am. I'll get him out as quiet. Good people, bring a light. But a solitary female in the dark with half the beasts in Noah's Ark, Mr Crow. Mr Crow, I'd have you to know. Just a little donkey, ma'am. Just a little donkey. Winter feels a long way off. Less so if you started rehearsing now to perform in the white boys' play that happens in our streets at Christmas. This traditional Manx mumming play is a celebration of costume, dance, song and sword action. We owe much of its revival to Philip Leighton Stoll, who was a folk dancer and Manx scholar. Before we listen to extracts from a 1970s interview with Philip, the children of Dune School will give us a couple of loud blasts from their white boys' play at Christmas. He might want to turn the volume down. A doctor! A doctor! Is there a doctor to be found? That can cure my son St George of his deep and deadly wound! A doctor! A doctor! Yes, my doctor! Yes, there is a doctor to be found! Who can cure my son St George of his deep and deadly wound! From which come ye? Here's Philip, first describing the sword dance, which is as dangerous as it sounds. Have you ever seen the dance performed by the six men? I don't remember it, Mr Stone. Well, um, uh, at the end of the dance, the six men are in a ring, and uh, one, the, one man, he puts his sword down to the man opposite the ring. And then that man puts his sword on top of his, so there are two swords. Two swords, one top of the other. Mm. Oh, by the way, we, we didn't use real swords. Mm. We used flat ash swords. Mm. Um, and then the other two did the same, so that in the middle of the ring there were six swords. Mm. Well, 
at, when they were doing that, they were moving just slowly, going round very, very slowly in a kind of a jog trot, an easy jog, keeping to the music. <clears throat> and then, at a given signal from the king of Egypt, the doctor ran in and sat on the swords. And then we lifted him right up high above our heads, sitting on the swords. Now he was quite safe because he had six swords on him. And in that, with him sitting there, he was waving his hat like this as he went round in a ring. He just waved his hat and uh, while the people cheered, clapped. Mm -hmm. But um, I have one note here. Um, I forget who told me that. Was Canon Gill, whom you've heard of, Canon Gill, he remembered all the dance and he, I was, have a note here, he was very satisfied with the result, but he said the doctor stood on the swords. Mm -hmm. Now, I've a note underneath this, I have tried this, but cannot see my way to make it compulsory. It means the doctor's head is ten feet from the ground, and as he is spinning round it's very difficult to maintain his balance. We are all right on the ground, but he's spinning round on his axis. And th besides this, I said, the doctor himself is not keen on us. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, and besides that, I have another note here. Max kitchens were really ten feet in height, so the dancers could n not have lifted the doctor up to a standing position top of their swords. Have had a hole in the ceiling. Yes. If the doctor survives the sword dance, then there's the hat to hand round. That when the doctor begged for money, would they throw a penny or some coin to him, you see, to make it realistic? Well, he, when the play's over, he's, the doctor steps out and he says, My hat is done. He wears a top hat. My hat is done and cannot speak. Please give us something for Christmas's sake. And then the pennies flung the stage. But not only the front row people flung pennies, everybody flung pennies. And then there was two pounds, eighteen and sixpence on the stage. And some of them were half crowns. Mm -hmm. Boys, so I thought that was marvellous. Mm. Well, as a matter of fact, the coins were coming in so thick and fast that they had their shields over their heads to protect themselves. Before we bid farewell to the white boys until Christmas, a tune from Philip. The, the dancers and George and Miss Mona Douglas uh, very kindly uh, translated into Manx for me. Uh, and my daughter sings it. Aileen, while Tony Archibald dances it, and the strange part about it is they all laugh at it. She has to sing one whole verse with one breath, and she does it. To keep the rhythm. Yes, she doesn't take, must, she mustn't take a breath because he's dancing, you see, and he can't stand uh, with one leg in the air while she takes a big gasp, and she sings it one breath to one verse all the way through, and she, and she can do it. She, she be, be, this is words that have been set to the tune. Yes, the <clears throat> the tune is um, <laughs> Now you see, when I took a breath that time, the dance would be uh, destroy his rhythm. Is this the the tune of the sword dance? The tune of the sword dance. Yes. We just heard the name Mona Douglas, a name familiar to the many interested in the folk music of this island. In 1975, Mona was interviewed about her Manx song collection. 
Songs have a knack of surviving down the years, as we discover in this wonderful story by Mona of a bicycle ride at night in a thunderstorm in Foxtel, where she took shelter with Mrs Shimin. A traditional singer will always repeat the thing and will never vary. Uh-huh. So, I mean, uh, you asked them a couple of times like to sort of sing the song. Oh, more than that, very yeah. often. Yeah. But, uh, <coughs> particular... For instance, when I recorded the uh, Sea and Vacation, yeah. it more or less came by accident because I'd been over. It was when one of the Celtic Congresses were being held in the island, and yeah. I, I used to go over. They had a lot of meetings in Peel, and I was working in Balasala at that time, yeah. Fishing Abbey. And uh, I used to go over on my bicycle to Peel and attend the meeting there. I was secretary at that time. And generally I went into Christopher Shimon's house for supper and we had a good cush. And then yeah. I set off with the bicycle to yeah. cycle back to Balasella, usually getting back somewhere in the early hours of the morning. And yeah. this particular night, I was going up Foxtail and there was uh, a woman uh, who had a little shop uh, just below the old railway bridge. I think it's made into an ordinary house now. It's no longer a shop, but there was a couple of houses down just below the road with a little um, street in front of them. And uh, Mrs. Shimon, her name was, and uh, I used to go in and out to talk to her quite a lot. And this particular night, just as I got somewhere up in the middle of Foxtel, came on a terrific mm. thunderstorm. I, hurried up and wondering whether Mrs. Shimon would be up, and she was. She hadn't gone to bed, there was a light in, so I went in, of course, they had, I got a cup of tea and yeah. started talking, and then we were talking about the storms and the fishing and one thing and another, and she said, did you ever hear the song the Peel girls used to be singing for the boys when they were away at the fishing? So I said, no, I don't think I did. Sing it for me. And she did. Yeah. And uh, I learnt it from oh, her, yeah, I tried yeah. to sing it with her, and she had a little um, harmonium yeah. in the parlour. Yeah. And uh, when I thought I had the tune, I went in and tried to work it out on this, mm. and uh, I got it more or less on that. And uh, then later on in the night, it cleared. The thunderstorm was over and I went on to Balasella and all the way back on the bicycle I was singing this darn song in case I would forget it. <laughs> well, I, I wonder whether you know if you could sort of give us, uh, if let us know how they did sing the song when you heard it, if you could perhaps uh, sing a bit of it now, like, you know. Well, uh, I think he sang it more or less the way I, I sing it when I do sing it, which isn't often because my singing days are over. I haven't got any sort of a voice to oh, sing it with that now. doesn't matter, I mean. similar vein, Claire Clennell, another Manx folk singer, also in 1975, 
talked to Manx Radio about the Manx Carvels, songs or ballads composed in the Isle of Man, which she helped preserve. People who composed these uh, Carvelin, what kind of people were Were they young people, people of any age? What do, what do you think? I think they would be people of any age. They were written by the people for the people, and, and I think anyone who had inspiration would get up and compose their own carvel and sing it. They would either compose their own tune or in those days they would perhaps use one which was going the rounds. And it is said that they could be sung to practically any uh, tune of the right meter, of course. Mm. But some, I think, must inevitably have been lost forever because in those days they were able to write down the language, but they did not know how to write down the music, in notation anyway. Mm. And they had to transmit everything orally down from singer to singer. And if the gentleman had not gone round in 1891 and finally noted down these melodies, I think many more would have gone forever. We've so far sculpted, sketched, versified danced and sung our way through the arts in the Isle of Man. Let's end with the popular, but no less important arts, radio, the dance hall and cinema. In 1964, Radio Caroline anchored north off our shores, which led to one junior reporter, Colin Brown, sharing the Oki with a pop star. Oh, from time to time, as it became established, quite a lot of pop stars of the day mm-hmm. went, went on board. Mm-hmm. And I remember one particularly, Peter Noon from Herman's Hermits. Um, as, a, as a young lad, I used to go for a, a coke after a cricket match in the Plough Hotel in Ramsey. And I got a phone call one day from somebody in the Plough to say, if you want to get yourself down here, Peter Noon from Herman's Hermits is, uh, is in the bar. So first reaction was to say, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. But uh, I went down and he was there, sure enough. And... He was apparently a great dance enthusiast. And I said to him, do you fancy uh, just answering one or two questions for the press? And he said, on condition, we have a game of darts first. Mm. I Probably in my life, I'd played about three games of darts, and he was obviously a real expert at it. And we must have played five or six games of darts before he would, he would finally agree to talk to me. Meanwhile, in the 50s, the Villa Marina Ballroom filled to the sounds of Joe Loss, as recalled by Jennifer Lees, who worked at the villa during her school holidays. Joe Loss was in the in the villa ballroom, and they were packing them in. And uh, a town councillor complained that there were 6,000 people a night kicking themselves to death in the villa marina. And the next night, Joe Loss played I Get a Kick Out of You. But it, it wasn't just a dance, it was a show. And the, a half of the villa marina floor was always taken up with people standing, listening to the singers, and then there was half left for dancing. It was a terrific time. Jennifer also remembered from this 1999 interview the cinemas that once dotted the island, as I expect some of our listeners do. Of course, we always did very well for films. Um, we used to get the films here, winter and summer, pre-release, pre-London. I don't know why, but I, I mean, as a young person, I went to cinema a lot. And uh, they were films that were not even premiered in London. I remember seeing Whiskey Galore. And there were so many cinemas. There was oh, Strand, the um, Picture House in, in, in Strand Street. There was the Royalty. 
Um, there was the Crescent Cinema in the in the uh, summertime, that great big enormous cinema. And of course, there was Onken, Peel, <laughs> Port uh, Port Aaron. I mean, the, the, the pictures were the and the, they were tremendous use of the pictures too. Which was your uh, favourite of all the cinemas? Oh, I don't know really. The Crescent was lovely because it was so big and airy. You know, I liked that, but. Uh, I don't know. They were all they're all nice. The regal, the, the organ came up in the regal, no, <laughs> but uh, they've they've all gone. It's just incredible. They've all gone. Charles Kelly, born in 1907, watched another Charlie in the silent films at various matinees, as his song reveals during the First World War. You must have seen a lot of Charlie Chaplin's in your time. Oh yes, so Charlie <laughs> Chaplin's bending the lamppost over and gassing the villain. <laughs> <laughs> Used to be a song about him, wasn't it? Uh, the moon, oh, the yes. moon shines bright. Oh, this, oh the sun shines bright on Charlie Chaplin. His boots are cracking for the want of blacking. And his khaki trousers want mending before we send him to the Dardanelles. <laughs> And finally, Tommy Milchrist, born 1900, shares with Manx Radio his memories of the cinemas in Castletown when he was a boy, a time when the art of the filmmaker met the humble screwdriver at Punch's Perfect Pictures. Now, now when you were going to school, there was no radio, obviously no television. No. There was... There was no films either, no. was there? No. Was there the cinemas? Just the pictures, just the silent pictures. Yeah. Where was that at? In, in Malusti, Punch's Perfect Pictures. It was, yes. Punch's Perfect Tom, Pictures. Tom Punch and Willie Punch, two brothers. And, and the old man was alive then, old Mr Punch himself. And uh, used to get one of us young, and with a screwdriver, go out to the, it was out at the, you covered in, out of the backyard, and turning this screwdriver to keep the thing Keep going. the film yes, going round. Keep the film going round, yes. <laughs> oh, there's good to play, that's so right. you've seen the cinemas come and go here. Oh, by word, yes, I have that. Yeah. Oh, my word, I, yes. The, the, what, what the cosy is the one we remember, there was, there was others as well. That's it? right. And and, and uh, the late uh, Dickie Coven that opened, that started that one there in, in uh, Mill Street. That's yes, Eve. That's the that, that picture house. Oh yes, it was. Thanks for listening to Voices from the Arts. Join us again in the autumn for the next series of Voices from Unlocking Our Sound Heritage. Or in the meantime, listen again on the podcast available on the Manx Radio website. You can visit imuseum.im and click on Unlocking Our Sound Heritage to listen to these and many more sound recordings from the Manx National Heritage Sound Archive. To find out more about the charity Manx National Heritage and how you can support us, visit our website, manxnationalheritage.im or join us on Facebook. Facebook.